We're in a message series called Jesus Said What? And uh, what we've been looking at is some of the things that Jesus said, some of his words um, that are a little more surprising, that maybe aren't the words that we would maybe expect the Son of God to say or, or God himself to say. And if you're maybe new to Christianity or if you don't know a whole lot about this Bible stuff, let me just kind of start a little basic. Because if you look at the New Testament, there's what we call the Gospels. And the Gospels are four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And throughout those Gospels, if you're reading in a certain Bible, there's words, there's letters that are read. If you have what's called a red letter Bible. And as you're reading through that, what that means is these are the words that Jesus himself spoke. And so that means it's time to pay extra close attention to those words because Jesus himself said those. And we know that the words of Jesus are powerful beyond measure. There's so much power in them and teaching and and just so much for our lives and we really need to listen when Jesus speaks and so the purpose of this series is to figure out what are some of those words that Jesus said about some of the topics that maybe we wouldn't expect him to say these things about because we get it twisted sometimes and so what we're doing in this series to, to get the power out of those words is we're looking at what did Jesus say what did Jesus not say because a lot of us think he said stuff that he never said um, what would we have said what do we wish he'd said we look at all those questions to kind of Um, embrace what he really did say. And so today, uh, we're going to pick a topic that probably resonates with most of you, um, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say about happiness, about happiness. And what I know about almost everybody in the room is, is you would like to be happy. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in life who kind of goes through life saying, man, I just, I woke up to be miserable today. That's my purpose in life. I just want to be miserable. Um, Maybe some people, but what I want to do is, is look at what Jesus actually did say about the topic of happiness. And so before we dive into what he did say, just like last week, we have to look at some of the stuff that he did not say about happiness. Because happiness, would you agree, is something that people in our world strive for? It's something that a lot of people are after. They're seeking after it. They're walking toward it. And a lot of people don't find it. Uh, And so here's some things he did not say. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. That's why we preach stuff here that uh, is straight from the word of God, whether it makes you happy or not. Um, He did not say, uh, whoever wants to follow me must avoid the cross and just follow your own heart. Jesus never said, follow your own heart, even though you hear people tell that to each other all the time. Uh, He did not say, whoever wants to be my follower must affirm themselves. Whoever wants to follow me must avoid hardship. Didn't say that. This one's my favorite. Jesus never said, ask and it will be given to you because God is your celestial sugar daddy. And he'll just give you everything that you ask for because that's what it says in the word when you read it literally, right? You know, God never said any of that about our happiness. And so, so today we're going to look at John's gospel. We're going to start in John chapter 8. And there's a, there's a really cool story in here that has incredible power and application to our lives. And, and so I hope you hang on to every word of this story. And at the end of the story, though, we're going to look specifically at the words that Jesus says at the end of this story. And uh, it starts this way. John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. And then it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the Pharisees, if you don't know, were people who looked very religious on the outside, but they were big-time hypocrites on the inside, okay? The teachers and the Pharisees of the law brought a woman caught in adultery, let me, let me pause there for a second before we continue because I want you to kind of visualize this with me. Jesus is kind of out in this town square and he's essentially leading a small group or teaching a Bible study. It's that kind of setting. There's some people gathered around and then some hypocritical religious men, it says, drag a woman before him 
that was caught in the act of adultery. And there's a couple of things that, you know, if we had more time, we'd probably talk about, but we don't have a lot of time. One is, where's the man in the story? They just dragged the woman before him. I don't think that's right. They left that part out. Secondly, um, where are you peeping at where you find a woman caught in adultery? That's a whole nother deal going on. I don't, I don't really understand that part. But nonetheless, these guys bring a woman who's caught, it says, in the act of adultery. And, and so you can imagine if, if she's caught in the act of adultery, um, you can imagine that chances were she's barely dressed. This would have been the lowest, uh, most humiliating moment of her life. And what's interesting is the men didn't care about her, if you continue reading. They just cared about using her as a tool to get at Jesus. That's what they're trying to do here. And so uh, you can see that in the upcoming part of the story. It says, they made this woman stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Imagine they're going to publicly, in other words, throw rocks at this woman until she dies a very brutal death for this act that she was caught in. And then they asked Jesus, what do you say, teacher? And verse 6 shows us the motive behind their question. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. So they basically are putting Jesus in a no-win situation here. Why? Because according to the law of Moses that they're referring to, this woman is supposed to be stoned for this sinful act. The woman was guilty, and, and so she should be stoned. And by the way, when I say stoned, I'm not referring to medicinally or... Uh, or recreationally speaking, I just feel like in the context of our current environment and some of you like to do certain things for entertainment that we should, we should point that out, okay? So the law of Moses says this shouldn't happen, so Jesus is in an odd spot here because if he agrees and says, yes, go ahead and kill her, go ahead and stone her, then he is contradicting everything he's been teaching up to this point, that he is a man of grace and, and love. So he can't do that because he's risking his reputation, on the other hand, if he says, ah, oh, it's not that big a deal, let's make an exception here, let's just, uh, you know, say that this isn't a big deal, we're going to break the law of Moses, even though this woman was apparently caught in an act of adultery. Um, if he does that, he's uh, condoning the sin of adultery, so he can't do that either because it is a sin. So what in the world is Jesus going to do? He's in a no-win situation. Verse 6, the end of the verse, says this, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And this is interesting because they ask him a question and he kneels down and starts scribbling some words in the sand. Instead of answering them, which is often how he responded, he just knelt down, I'm not going to entertain your question, and he just starts writing something in the sand. And that raises the question that's been asked by scholars for over 2,000 years now, what the heck did Jesus write in that sand? And it doesn't tell us. And we will not know this side of eternity for sure. Uh, but there's a lot of theories about it. I'm going to tell you the one that I believe, and, and there's, some, there's some basis for that, and I'll tell you why I believe that. But um, later manuscripts say that Jesus actually wrote the sins of those hypocritical men in the sand as they're standing there because he knew them. And so, of course, they were intimidated and started to walk away. We don't know if that's true for sure, but I tend to think it is. And here's one of the reasons that I do think that's true. There's actually two different Greek words, the original language the New Testament was written in, that are words that describe the process of writing down, okay? The first Greek word actually literally means to write down, but that's not the word that's used in this if you trace it back to the original. The word that they use in the Greek here is actually the word that means to write against. So I find that very interesting that that would be a more literal interpretation of what actually happened there, that he's writing, whatever he wrote in the sand, he's writing it against somebody or against something, in other words. 
And I'm just, I'm just visualizing this, okay? So Jesus is looking out at the Pharisees, and, and, and maybe he sees Phil, you know, Pharisee Phil. And, and so he writes down in the sand, Phil, since I'm the son of God, I know what's in your browser history. And I don't have to go through back that far to see that you were watching porn even last night. You know, I don't have to go that far back. And, and perhaps he's writing down the sins of those who are bringing the accusation against this woman. And then the story goes on in verse 7. It says, when they kept questioning Jesus, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin. In other words, if I can't write your name down here because you've never sinned at all and you didn't sin yesterday and you didn't consider sinning, then go ahead and cast the first stone, he says. And what here again is interesting to me, again, in the original language, when it says without sin, it doesn't just mean whichever of you are without sin. The literal translation of what was originally said there is whoever is without sin or who hasn't even considered wanting to sin. That's a little more broad. It means literally without even wanting to sin. And I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times where I didn't sin, but I wanted to. Can, can we be that real? There's a lot of times where maybe I didn't partake in the act of sinning, but I was still very much wanting to. It's also true that, you know, we can be really good at finding other people's sins, but sometimes we're really bad at looking at our own, and we're really good at hiding them. It's easy to point the finger at other people when, in fact, you're doing the same thing, or sometimes you're doing worse or something different, and kind of like the time that I remember when I actually had just preached a sermon on lying. This was earlier this year, and... Uh, I go to the store after church to pick up some items, and there were some people waiting at our house for us for dinner that night. And normally when I go to Target, uh, which is where I went, I, I can't, I, I don't know why, but I can't go to that store without running into people from here. <laughs> it happens every single time. Like a lot of you are there, a lot, I guess. You all shop at Target. And so um, normally that's awesome, and I love running into people from the church, but I was in a hurry because there's people waiting at my house. And so, you know, I just preached online, but I'm walking through the store pretending to be talking on the phone <laughs> so that nobody would talk to me. And then, of course, it, it got messed up, though, when Amy calls me <laughs> to tell me something else I need to bring home. And basically, I could have got caught there. So that was not good. Whoever is not only without sin, but you've never even wanted to sin, you can pick up the rock and be the first one to hurl it at this woman who was caught in sin. Verse 8 says this, Again, Jesus stooped down again, and he's riding on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Phil left first. I added that part in. The older ones left first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up, and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, sir. And then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. But here's the next part that some of us like to write in that he did not say. He did not say, neither do I condemn you, so go ahead and go do whatever makes you happy. He did not say, neither do I condemn you, go ahead and go follow your own heart. He did not say, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody else. He did not say, go, go do you, boo. <laughs> do whatever makes you happy. Jesus did not say that. But he did ask her, where are you, your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then this is what he actually said. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. That's what he said. So this, here's, here's the part we mix up. This was not a condemning, judgmental, heart, hurtful statement. This was full of love. 
And you can almost feel the urgency as he says this. He doesn't say go later. He says go now. Go now. Don't wait. You're free. He's saying go now. Don't wait. Live a better life right now. Go live a better life than you did before. Go now. You don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live for the things of this world. Go now. You no longer have to live in darkness. I've set you free, so go now and be free from your life of sin. It's actually a statement full of love and grace. In other words, you don't have to be held hostage anymore by what you were just caught in. You are now free, but don't go back to it. Go free and walk in truth. And why is it, though, that so many of us, including me, give in to temptation so often? (laughs) Why is it? And, guys, the honest answer, can we just be that honest, is it's appealing. It's so appealing. It looks fun. How many of you would agree sin can be fun? And if you're not raising your hand, you either didn't do it right or you're lying. (laughs) Because it's true. The Bible says that sin is appealing. It calls it the fleeting pleasures of this world. Sin is appealing. Sin promises happiness. It's pleasurable for a little while. It can be fun. But then it will mess you up. What does it do? If you're taking notes, here's a point for you. Sin promises happiness, but it promises it at the cost of disobedience to God and also eventual pain to yourself. Let me say that again. Sin promises happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction. You're going to like this. It's going to be good. It's going to make you feel happy. You're going to really enjoy it, but it's at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. And as I read this particular story As much as I can, I like to try to get into the mind of this woman and what was it that she was experiencing in this moment? What was she feeling? Where where did she come from? What, What type of woman was she? And really, we have no idea what type of woman she was. Maybe she was just an evil woman who woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm gonna go have sex with whoever I can and wreck a marriage. Maybe that's who she was. Maybe she was like that. Odds are, though, she wasn't. Odds are, she was very different than that. Odds are, I'm, I'm just playing the odds, but she was probably a decent woman. She maybe was even a God-fearing woman. And I'm just imagining and and kind of bringing it into modern-day context here because it helps me. And so I'm kind of visualizing that maybe she was in a marriage and the marriage was good at first, but then it fell flat. They loved each other a lot, but then it went flat and maybe her husband started to take her for granted, didn't appreciate her. Maybe he started to be a little bit verbally abusive or telling her that her ideas were dumb or Maybe worse, I don't know. So perhaps she goes and gets a job, and she feels pretty good about herself. She starts to feel good about herself because she finally got a, went and got a job, and she feels this identity rising up inside of her. And then one day at work at this new job, she's interacting with a, with a guy at work, and he's kind of fun, and they have a good conversation, and it's totally innocent. There's nothing wrong there, but she enjoys it. And then after a while, he starts to pay a little more attention to her, and she feels a little bit guilty about it, but it's still pretty innocent, and he compliments her, and she appreciates it, and he appreciates her work and says, hey, you did really well on that project, and her husband never says anything like that to her. And the next day, he notices her hair. Her husband didn't even notice her hair, and she'd put highlights in it. He didn't notice, but the guy at work did. And then he follows her on Instagram, and he kind of starts liking and commenting on every post, fire, heart, smiley, And she finds herself liking it. She finds herself looking forward to going to work, but all of a sudden now it's for kind of the wrong reasons. 
she looks forward to seeing him during the day, and then one day they kind of stay late after work, and he opens up about his marriage, and his wife isn't very good to him either. Then he says something like, you know what, I feel like I made a mistake, I shouldn't have married her, I wish I'd married somebody that was more like you. Then he accidentally brushes up against her arm and walks away, and she thinks, I liked that. I wonder if it was on accident or if it was on purpose. Maybe there's something there. And then she starts to actually think in her mind, he would make me happy. And then she tells her girlfriend, and her girlfriend says, follow your heart, girl. Do what makes you happy, because that's what this life is about. You just do you. Boo. (laughs) We don't know how it happened, okay? I'm just pointing out that it's not always what it seems. And that's how a lot of temptation leads to grave sin, is step by seemingly innocent step after seemingly innocent step after step after step with no boundaries in front of you and no walls up to protect you. And you fall into doing one of the worst things you've ever done in your life. Why do so many of us end up in similar places in our life like that? I'm going to answer that. It's because we live in a very relativistic culture. What is relativism? Well, relativism is something that's spreading rampant in our culture. And it is the belief that everything is relative. In other words, there's no such thing as absolute truth. If it's true for you, it might not be true for me. Truth, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and people talk about it all the time. I hear it constantly, that that's actually a true thing and a beautiful thing, and that goes so against the Word of God, and it's the reason that our culture is going downhill. You live your truth, I'll live mine. There's no such thing as absolute truth, so I'm just going to do whatever makes me happy. And here's the fundamental problem, if you want to write this down. Without a belief in absolute truth, then truth is defined by whatever makes me happy. And you ask, what's wrong with our culture in so many ways today? That's one of the biggest deals. It's one of the biggest reasons. Because people have stopped believing in absolute truth. Because some of it's uncomfortable. Because some of it's not tolerant. Because some of it doesn't make us feel great. Or it offends others. And so we let go of the parts and the pieces of the absolute truth that we don't want to believe in. And now all of a sudden we're relativists, which is not what God intended this to be. Here's another one for you. When the point of life is my happiness, then happiness becomes the standard by which I judge actions, both my actions and the actions of others. Well, hey, if if that makes you happy, I'm glad you're doing it. Who cares if it's wrong according to God's word? If it makes you happy, then I'm happy about it for you. If it makes me happy, it must be good. If it doesn't make me happy, it must be bad. I know every, everyone else says this is wrong, but it just feels so right, so it must be right. What's the root cause of this problem? For so many of us, the problem is that we think that happiness and holiness are at odds with each other. We think that happiness and holiness contradict each other, and you can't have one without the other. And man, if I'm going to live for God, and I'm going to try to be holy, and I'm going to do the things that God's instructed me to be, then that means I'm throwing fun out the window. That means all my joy is going to go away because I like to party or whatever it is. And deep down, somehow, we have this distorted view of what Christ represents and teaches. So then we tend to think that, well, you have to choose one or the other. You can't have both. They don't go hand in hand. That's that's what we believe about it. If you choose holiness, you know, I want to be holy, then you're destined for a life of misery forever. And that's what a lot of people believe when they're younger, when they're having fun doing this or that and Maybe you're feeling drawn, drawn to God, but you think, man, if I really become a follower of Christ, then I'm going to stop having fun and I'm going to be destined to a life of boredom because you think that's how Christians actually live and you're completely missing the boat. 
If I follow Jesus, I'm going to be miserable. And guys, God is not in heaven looking down upon us and saying, for God so loved the world that he wants his children to be holy and miserable. <laughs> it's not in there. No, it, it says he is a good, loving father. In fact, Jesus said this about him. He said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how many of you love to spoil and bless your children and make them happy? I do. I love to make my children happy. It's my favorite thing. He says, if you, of all people, love to do that, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a good, loving Father. And so if we find ourselves at odds with, I want to be holy, but I don't want to be unhappy, and I don't see how I can do both, the problem is that you're looking for happiness in the wrong place. You're looking, you're looking at a lower place when God designed you for a higher place. I'm going to use an illustration that, that I read in a Max Licato book, and he tells this illustration really well, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit to make it my own. And so if you don't like it, blame me, not him. But he asked this question in the book. He says, would a fish ever be happy on the beach? Do you think so? No. I don't think so. Visualize it. If you take a fish out of the water, right, where he belongs, and you put it on the beach, is that fish on the beach going to be happy? And the answer is no. What's the fish doing? Flopping around. I'm not going to act that out. <laughs> so imagine, though, we give the fish some things from this world as he's sitting on the beach unhappy because we want to try to make him happy. So we give him some stuff from this world. So imagine that, you know, we give this fish a pile of cash, just rain and Benjamins, right? We give him a pile. Is the fish going to be happy then? Heck no. He's still flopping. So then what if, we, what if we do something different? What if we throw a party for the fish? Is he happy now? Even if we get a celebrity to come? Oh. How about if we serve him some margaritas? Or let him take a selfie? He gets a record number of likes on his selfie. It's not hashtag fitbod, it's hashtag fishbod. That was, that was stupid. That was stupid. What if you get the fish a Playboy, I mean, Playfish magazine? Is he going to be happy now? It's like, ooh, look at that fish tail. <laughs> the answer, guys, is the fish is never going to be happy. It's never going to be happy because the fish was not designed by God to be on the beach. And if you try to give it the things that make you happy on the beach, it's not going to be happy because it wasn't created for the beach. If you find yourself wondering why you aren't happy living for the things of this world and trying to insert those things into your life that you weren't created to, to have make you happy, then maybe you should actually lower your expectations of the earth because you were not created for the earth. You were created for things out of this world. You were created by God to live for things that are not in this world. And that's why sin promises satisfaction and never delivers it. It promises happiness at the cost of obedience to God and eventual pain to you. So what do we need to understand? This is so important. Holiness is not the opposite of happiness. It's not. In fact, they're very related. Here's another one. Holiness is, in fact, the pathway to true joy. And joy is different from happiness, by the way. Joy is something straight from God that cannot be taken from you. So let me say that again. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They're not at odds with one another. They're united. They're connected. Serving God, living for him, not for the lower things of this world, but for the higher things that are eternal, that's the pathway to true meaning in life. I love the way that David said it in Psalm 16. 
verse 11. He said, you, God, will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand are th- there are pleasures forever. Not the fleeting pleasures of sin, but the eternal pleasures, the ones that last forever. And that's why, guys, when the woman who was guilty as we are guilty was caught in one of the most shameful acts in this shame-filled moment of her life, Jesus did not look at her and say, I'm embarrassed by your behavior, girl. I, after all I've done for you, that's the way you choose to live. You are pathetic. That's not what he says. Jesus said what? That there's something so much better. Be free. Go. Live a better life. Go. Leave this sin behind and be free to do that. My grace is covering you, so go do it. But now go live a better life. Don't go back to that. Walk in truth. Leave the lower things of the sin-filled world and live for the things that actually matter, that are eternal. So (laughs) what do you do when you know what's right and you still find it so hard to do it? You just keep doing what's, what do you do when you feel trapped? Well, it, it looked good. It promised something, but it didn't deliver, and I, can't, I just can't seem to find my way out. What do you do when you know it's wrong, but you can't get out? So, you know, for some people, it's alcohol. For some people, you, you, you drink too much. For some people, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's smoking something or it's popping something or trying to fill a void with approval. Will this make me feel like I'm enough if you give me your approval? Or maybe for you it's that you feel empty on the inside so you fill yourself up with food or you feel embarrassed and you try to hide yourself all the time instead of being the real you. Some of you it's, the, it's this feeling of emptiness and so you somehow believe that if I would just get that something, whatever that thing is that will fill me up, whether it's, whether it's a pair of shoes or this thing I can buy or that package arrives and that makes me happy in that moment and so I'm going to have a package arrive every day, whatever that might be. Whatever's in the box is going to make me happy. For some of you, it might be a critical spirit. And so the way that you deal with your self-esteem, your low self-esteem is by pushing others down below your low self-esteem. But then you find that you just don't like anyone, you don't like anything, and you somehow think that's going to make you better, but it doesn't, so you pick everybody apart. Some of you are stuck in a lust-filled prison. You clicked and you looked, you clicked and you looked, you clicked again and you looked. You promised God you'd never do it again, then the next day you clicked and you looked again. Then you surrendered it to God and said, I promise I won't do it again because I feel sick and ashamed, and then you clicked and looked and did it again. For some of you, it might be the wrong type of relationship. You go back, he mistreats you. You go back again, he mistreats you. You find someone else, they mistreat you too because you're constantly going to the wrong person. We return to it so often in life, again and again and again. And so the question is, what do you do when you know you're not living God's best? What do you do when you're not going after the things that God tells you to go after when you're going on the wrong path, but you find yourself all of a sudden barely dressed and ashamed and can't quite figure out how you got there? And so I want to end by telling you about the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. The grace of God that's available to every single person in this room at this very moment. Paul said it this way. He said, God is faithful. Our God is always faithful. Our God is so faithful that he will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But listen to me, when you're tempted, when you're trapped, when you feel stuck, when you feel like you're in prison and there's no way out, it says God will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
There's always grace, is my point. And there's always the potential of freedom. So just like the woman, some of you who might be sitting there in shame because of some of the things I just brought up that maybe you've lived or decisions you might have made recently, there's always grace. And so that's what you need to embrace now because Jesus didn't shame her. Jesus didn't say, you know, yeah, you're done. Yeah, you have no hope. He said, no, that was wrong. You're free. You have my grace. Now go and sin no more. Go do something better. He always gives you a way out. It's a little bit like video games today. <laughs> how many play video games today? Okay, how many of you are my age or older and you remember the real video games? <laughs> okay, thank you, Steve. <laughs> I'm talking about games like Pac-Man, Frogger, Joust, Dig Dub. <laughs> And do you remember one called Asteroids? It's one of the first video games I ever played. And there was a joystick with one button on it. And the spaceship was simply a triangle that moved around the screen. And these little dots called Asteroids came at the spaceship trying to take it down. And you'd move around and do all this stuff. But sometimes the Asteroids would be coming at you and you're on one side of the screen and there's nowhere to go because there's a line here. And so there's this button on the joystick. There's only one button. It has to be the button you push. And you push it and you immediately go to another part of the screen. There was always a way out with that button. There was always an escape. You're in trouble, boom, you hit the button and you can escape. In the kingdom of God, there's always a way out. That's what he's saying. No matter what temptation comes your way, there is always a way out. And God is faithful. He is so faithful that he always gives you a way out. So what do you do when you're tempted? And I hope you'll understand the power of this truth. Every temptation is actually an opportunity to depend on Christ. So every time you feel trapped, every time you feel tempted, every single time that you feel like, oh shoot, I'm going to fail again, it is an opportunity to stop and say, no, in this moment, I'm going to depend on Christ. So what do you do when you're trapped? You recognize he gives you a way out. He gives it to you. He doesn't look down on you and say, I'm embarrassed by you, I'm ashamed of you, now go do whatever you do. No, he says, you go be free. Because of my grace, you can be free. Because of my grace, you can go and you can become a follower of Christ. You can be bold for me. You can, you can engage in, in some of the, the same sins, you know, over and over again. Or you can engage with Christ and just do that. And, you know, there was, a, there was a season in my life where it seemed like certain sins I was just going back to again and again and again. And I lived that where I literally would be ashamed of the sin I just committed, and I would look to God and I would say, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed, forgive me. I, and I'd promise God I would never do it again, and the next day I would. I think there's a, a place in one of the writings of Paul, I'm, I'm skipping out on the passage, but he says, I do not want to do what I do, but I continue to do it again and again and again. And some of us get in that cycle and we wonder why it's happening. And here's the deal. There's a big difference between remorse and repentance. And I had to learn that the hard way. Remorse is, I got caught, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> That's remorse. Repentance is something entirely different, okay? Re means to turn. Pent means that which is high. So it means turning to something higher. Turning away from what's down here, which is what we're going to again and again and again, and turning to something higher, not just to stop doing this thing, because that's how some of us live trying to beat sin. I'm going to stop doing this thing. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm going to put up walls and not do this thing. But we don't replace it with something higher. 
And so some of us live this life of shame, and we're so ashamed, and we, we feel dirty or whatever it is, and so we just hide. When instead, we should start replacing that sin with things in our life that are higher, things God has asked us to do, things God has tried to put inside of us. Because we're free to sin no more. It's all about the re. Some of you need to return to God. I looked up some re-words, and I put them together in a sentence. And the sentence goes like this. When you rebuke the enemy and return to God by repenting of your sins and receiving Christ, your spirit is reborn, your mind is renewed, your life is rebuilt, and while you're reconciled by the grace of Jesus Christ, you reap the rewards of relationship, causing revival to break free. It's all about the re. And so when you feel trapped and when you feel caught and when you feel broken and shamed, what Jesus does not say is that, you know what, that wasn't good. Go ahead and do what makes you happy. That'll be better. He doesn't say that. He says, I've got a better path for you. I'm not going to let anyone else throw stones at you. Go be free. Live a better life. Because holiness and happiness are not at odds. They're actually really connected. And you were created to walk in truth, and that's where you find real joy.